So Kabbalah is essentially reflections about the nature of God within the Jewish tradition. Uh, we don't have something so much called theology. And so uh-oh, other people define Kabbalah differently. They'll define it as the esoteric part of the Jewish tradition, um, a, 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 secret, a line of secret teachings. It's a, a, a countercultural hippie part of the tradition. Everyone always wants to say that the mystical side of any religion is the countercultural part, but that's not really necessarily true. I mean, I think that even within, the, you know, whether it's the church or the evangelical church, the, the interplay of mysticism and formal teachings is, is much more fluid than people give it credit for. So it, we make a duality where we say people who like to meditate aren't really praying, they're the countercultural people, and whoever else in some organized religion, they're just praying normal, they're the, they're the mainstream. But I think in many religions, there is an interplay between the two. A normal Catholic priest may well be influenced by monks who take vows of silence. Um, and so it, it's not like, oh, they're, 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 the, they're the opposite of me. I think it's definitely true in Judaism. So that what Kabbalah basically is, and so I'm a little bit different saying it's more mainstream than some like to represent it, is it basically starts all the way in the temple period. So we know that from the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has visions that we read about, if you want your child to have a really crazy bar bat mitzvah, you sign them up for Shavuot, and then uh, we can read Ezekiel's vision of the chariot flying across the sky and all of the lions and the creatures and the colors. But, you know, you can either see him as mentally ill or as poetic, but he was not taken that way in the tradition. He was taken as a prophet. And so that he clearly is seeing something in the sky that we're not seeing. And it's probable that he's seeing something real. But so that there are things that are invisible that some people can see and other people can't. Following the, in the, already in the temple period, the second temple period, people wanted to do what Ezekiel did and they copied him. And there were secret, secret, there were traditions of how to have visions. So all the way pre-Talmud, we have mystical traditions of how can you see a vision? How can you see the invisible? And not only that, but people like R.A. Kaplan and others think that the Amidah, which, so we basically have two main prayers if you open up the Talmud. I mean, we have lots of cool prayers, but the two main ones are the Shema, and the other one is the standing silent prayer of the Amidah. You do the Shema twice a day, you do the Amidah three times a day. In the Talmud, the Amidah is simply called the prayer. So it's the main prayer. And you know, you stand up and you get silent, and suddenly we all feel like we're in a Quaker meeting hall, right? I mean, if it's done right, which is that the pinnacle of the service is quiet time with God, one of the theories is that the original Amidah was all silent. And the fact that now we teach our kids to say, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Avoteinu, and we do it ourselves, is actually a later development. And it was an accommodation to the fact that even in the earliest times where the prayers were being formed in the Second Temple period, but pre-Talmud, that already you had an issue, which is some people meditated for prayer. Maybe so they could have visions of God, or maybe so that they... Because what you find is practices of meditation tend to be cross-cultural. It's not that the Sufis learned from the Jews that you should focus on your breath. It's that anyone who's ever meditated figured out whether they are a tribe in the Amazon or they're a Muslim in the 1400s or they were a Jew in the year 200 that you have to focus on your breath, you block out all your thoughts. So 
Um, it's a transcultural phenomenon of meditation that they, you tend to come to the same practices and conclusions. And the Amida was thought of as this silent meditation time. But not everyone was down with silent meditation. Um, remember that the actual prayers in the temple, they start out silent. There's a famous book on what happened during sacrifice in the, original, in the first temple, and that book is called, it's called The Sanctuary of Silence. And it argues that originally, in the, in the biblical period, sacrifice took place in silence. But then we know, what are the psalms? The psalms say, a lot of them say, we're the, we're the tunes for the band for the temple. And we're, we're rocking it out. So the, psalm, the book of psalms becomes the prayers in the second temple period. And then it's not silent anymore. Why is it that the Amidah today, what you're supposed to do, and, and, and yeah, Traditionally, what prayer is for the Amidah is that it's completely silent, and then you do a full repetition, so that if you're doing a proper service, when you get to the prayer of the Amidah, even today, you're supposed to, everyone is supposed to be completely silent for a solid five to 10, maybe 12 minutes. And then when you're done, you sit down, and when the, main, when the leader sees that most people are sitting, the leader repeats the whole thing, and you're not supposed to sing. So where did this weird practice happen that you pray and then the cantor repeats it? One of the arguments, the theories that I think is probably right is that it was a compromise between those Jews in the second temple period who felt that proper prayer is meditation and those who felt that it should be out loud, out loud singing. And so what they did is they said, we'll do it all silently and then we'll do it out loud. Um, at the synagogue, what we do is an accommodation for time where you do the beginning part together and then you all go silent. And you're only supposed to do that when you don't have much time. And I think Saturday morning is a good place to consider that we don't have enough time because it's such a long service. Uh, interplay in the Amidah, is it silent meditation? And what is it? Or is it out loud prayers? And these are the two things that weave through the Jewish tradition, which is the hippie, God is everywhere, meditation, um, visualization, mantras, um, no personification of God, no big guy in the sky. And so, and those people are like, uh, more like fundamentalists or something. They're like, I'm uncomfortable with that. For me, God is, is a person, it's a king, the king of heaven, and uh, we have a conversation. She said something like at her synagogue, the rabbi just did this thing, like, which is, he's like, let me tell you what a conversation with God looks like. And it's like, God, why are things the way they are? And then God says, because what do you expect? It's kind of hard to run the world. You won't ever hear that kind of sermon from me. She's like, I would never hear that from you, Rabbi, right? And it's true because to me, that's just, that's just being a cute, cutesy about the fact that you have this very limited anthropomorphic view of God as a thing, which I don't think we're supposed to be doing. Okay. So then, so then what are we supposed to be doing? So the idea being that, let's just take a word like king. I had an argument at a wedding I did last Sunday where I got totally thrown off. And I hand him a photocopy with the blessing and a translation. He goes, what the heck is this? Right? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, it says, oh, Adonai, whose presence fills the universe. I know a little Hebrew. And this says king. King of the world, king of the universe. What kind of fruity thing is this? You know what I mean? So this is the fundamentalist in a way, talking to me, the mystic. Oh, 
crap, I got to deal with this. So then I'm like, okay. I said, you know what? Say it however you want. I really could care less. I said, do what you're comfortable doing. You want to bless your, your son with, you know, a king in the universe. Go for it. I think you should do what's in your heart. But that wasn't good enough. He really wanted to pick a fight. Right? So I was like, well, I'm not a king. So I said, okay, so what I'm telling you is this is the mystic me talking to the kind of anthropomorphic um, um, fundamentalist. Or, but of course, he's not fundamentalist. He's atheist, but he wants to be, you know, right. You know what I mean? That's that the whole night, thing. You got to know, like, you got to be firm on the God that the rabbi needs to believe in so you don't have to believe in it. Right? That's why the atheists are all fundamentalists. They're too threatened if they actually, you know, they don't really want to have a real conversation. And of course, he's trying to manipulate me here very quickly. So I said, look, what the, what's, what the word king means in our tradition is that God makes the laws of the universe. Right? He's like, well, yeah, that sounds like a king. Right? It sounds more like than the presence that fills the universe. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, if you feel that way, more power to you. I think when most, human, when most Americans hear the word king, they hear someone who's capricious, right? I'm going to tweet this now, and then 12 hours later, I'm going to tweet the opposite, right? Because I'm the duly elected king of the universe. So, um, so I, think that, I think when most people hear the word king, they think of a human who is capricious in the laws that they make. And I'm like, and the tradition is that the laws of the universe are the laws of the universe. They're not interrupted, right? They're not changed. So um, that's one of the, this is the, it's just an example of how the praying, these are kind of like two Jews having a conversation about the word king. Is a king like God on a throne who's like, you know, I have it in from the Dab today, I'm going to do a bad thing. Or are we talking about God is everywhere, God's presence fills everything because of all of the laws that run everything. The laws that run parenting, the laws that run physics, the laws that run biology, every, the laws that run the body, the laws that run ecology, um, that everything is, is God's presence because it all, in a way, is being... It, it, it's all operating according to rules and laws. And, um, and God's the lawmaker. And so that's what a king is. So I, I translate it like lawmaker, but he's not happy with that. So now we'll go back to the Amidah, and then I'll hand this out, which is that I want to show you a little bit of the Amidah and a part of it that you haven't seen about what a, a mystic would see in it. And hopefully you'll see something you've never seen before. So I am... During a normal weekday, you have 19 blessings in the Amidah. So we're talking about the, the tefillah. You have 19 blessings. On Shabbat and holidays, the Amidah is a lot shorter. And the reason simply is, many of you already know this, that many of those blessings are request blessings. right? You're like, God, oh, it sure would be nice if you healed people. That's one of the 19 blessings. We're actually not supposed to do that one on Shabbat, which is why everyone's favorite part of the Shabbat service is the healing blessing, um, because that's the way Jews are, right? You tell us we can't have something, and then we're desperate for it. So that the weird thing is, you're actually not allowed to do the blessing for healing on Shabbat and holidays, but we do it anyway. Some people get very upset at me because I don't do it on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and they're like, You're you don't care about the sick? You know, some rabbi, you know, um, but you're actually not supposed to do them. And seven blessings on Shabbat. All the ones that make requests like healing and, and, um, and there should be justice and, and you got to bring the, you know, the Messiah. All these requests, please God do this, do this, do this, that are all really holy things that we pray during the week to help center us. But on Shabbat, no requests. Why? Why spiritually do we not make requests on Shabbat? So why spiritually do we not do the request blessings? Sorry. 
actually are communal. They're like, please um, rebuild Jerusalem in our day and things like that. But they're giving God a job to do for the world, which is one of the reasons we do those during the, like, the week, which is that sometimes it's nice to know your day to remember that things like world peace are probably more important than um, you know, the bad client you just had. Um, but how are you supposed to experience the world on Shabbat? How are you supposed to experience it? No. It's supposed to be good enough. Good enough. On Shabbat, the world as is, is Diana. So that, um, so, you know, absolutely. During the week, you're like, it's terrible that people are starving. And during the week, it's terrible that we have global warming. And it's terrible that uh, there's anti-Semitism. And all those things, because you want to perfect the world. But we are demanded on Shabbat to take one day where you view your life, you know, your kids, your spouses, your friends, your situation as, thank God, like, it could be worse. I mean, like, you know, that, I mean, basically, that, like, you have to give your day, yourself and God a day to say, God, the life in the world that I receive is, um, is blessed. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good life. So, you know, sometimes the only thing you got in your thing is, well, at least I don't live during the time of the Black Plague without medicine. You know, and, but, like, if that's all you got, that's not a terrible Shabbat prayer. Like, you're, that's better than saying, God, you think you couldn't do something about the AIDS and the herpes and the stuff? Come on, we got Hep C now. I mean, could you do something? You're allowed to do that on a Tuesday. You're not allowed to do that on Shabbat. You say, you know what? The world's a beautiful thing. I'm lucky to be here. So with that, you, take, you suck out a lot of blessings, and you only leave seven. You, the ones you already know, Baruch HaTah Adonai, that's number one. You get, um, you know, and you get Michayeh it's two, and then you go on from there. So, there's one change in each of the Shabbat Amidas. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because here we are at the end of Shabbat. This would be a fine time to do the Mincha, which we never get a chance to do. So I want to show you on the pages the difference. There, if, you, if you line them all up side by side, so if you take a look at um, any of them. Here, I'll, I'll look where it says Amidah insertions. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And where are you now? We're going from right to left, like in Hebrew. So it's actually, this page is all English. I know that it's, I made this to do in color, and my color printer wouldn't print. It said that the ink cartridges were incompatible because I bought generics. So now I have to get on Amazon and say, despite 10,000 good reviews, you shouldn't buy these. Um, and so, but it's, it was all mystically intended. Arvid is the evening service. It's what we did last night at Shul. Shacharit's the morning service, that's what we did this morning. And we are right now in the moment of Mincha. So if I said, you know what, we should be davening. Let's all daven. You would be davening the Mincha afternoon or late afternoon um, service. Okay, is everyone on board with me so far? I, if I see some quizzical looks, I just want to know. Now, if you pay really close attention to the Amidah, there's a shift in some of the words, which is very, very minor. The rest are all the same. So if you look at our beat, it says, and I'm going to have to, you sanctified the seventh day for your glory, consummation of creating the heavens and the earth, blessing it above all other days, sanctifying it above all other times. Thus it is written in your Torah, the heavens and the earth and all they contained were completed. On the seventh day, God finished the work which he had been doing. He ceased on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and called it holy, because on it he ceased from his work of creation. If You can also find the Hebrew. If you look on the Hebrew one, it's a different side. 
And there you sit, and then you may read. If you're reading Nibu, Ataki Dashta Et Yom Hashbi'i Lishmecha. Taklib Masay Shemaim Ba'aretz, Uveraktomi Kol Hayami, Vikidashtomi Kol Hasmanim, Vehin Katubitoratecha. Bayahulu Hashamayim Vehaharet, Vehoholtsevaham, Bayahal Elohim, Bayom Hashbi'im, Lato Asher Asa. And it goes from there. So we actually pull out before the Kiddush, we sing that part of the Amidah. Then this morning, the Shabbat morning, what do we've got? I'll look at it starting in the Hebrew. Yismach Moshe b'manat helkoho ki even eman karat aloho kliel tiferet groshon natat aloho bandolaf nacha har Sinai. You have the Ten Commandments. Then you get the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat. And like on Friday night, we do the um, we do the Vayachulu before Kiddush. So on Saturday morning, we do the Vishamru before Kiddush. We pull a piece from the Amidah, and we do it before the Kiddush. And it goes on from there. And in English, what is that? In English, that is, Moses rejoiced at the gift of his destiny when you declared him a loyal subject, adorning him with a diadem of splendor as he stood in your presence atop Mount Sinai. And two stone tablets he brought down with him in which the observance of Shabbat is inscribed, and thus it's written, and you can, and you can um, keep going. Then you get to Mincha. Mincha has beautiful, beautiful nusach, beautiful melodies, and... You get it, and you get, and instead of those, you get What Hebrew word do you hear three times just in half a sentence? Echad. Good. Now all of this is going to be significant, and it goes from there. And in English, what you basically get is you are, and I don't know how to do echad. My dad always says the best translation is singular. Because it has the same connotation in Hebrew as in English, which is singular means both numerically singular and unique, and also special. So singular is if you're going to be literal translation. You are singular, and your character is singular, and who like and who are like um, your people Israel, a unique nation on earth. To your people, you granted splendor, magnificence, a coronet of vindication, and a day of tranquility. And on it, Abraham rejoiced, Yitzchak sent out, Yaakov in a sense found tranquility. And the descendants found tranquility, and a tranquility of, and of outreach. And tranquility, it, what word are you hearing a lot? Yeah, I, good, someone's paying attention. So tranquility, okay. Now you're like, what is up with all of this, and does any of this matter? That, so are you following me on the basic idea? You have the Abidah and Shabbat is short, you have one middle section that changes with the service. And that's very unusual, because during the week, the Amidah does not change whether you do it in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening. It's exactly the same. So this is a, what is happening on Shabbat. Okay, now I'll tell you what's happening. And you can also read any, you can know more than I by reading the things I put on your photocopy. So, um, which is this. Remember, if anyone who was in my Torah study when we did the burning bush, what is the meaning of God's name, yod heh vav heh So, and it, you, you'll do a great job. So raise your hand, tell me what yod heh vav heh means. What does God's proper name literally mean? Behu echad Okay, the Adonala means Haya, it was Vehu Hove. Yudhevave is a combination of the three words Vehu Haya, it was Vehu Hove, it is Vehu Yihie, it will be. 
And so the very meaning of God's name is um, the past, the present, and the future are rolled into one, and usually translated even in the Kabbalah into Aramaic into a word that means becoming. God is the very nature of becoming itself. It is both the fact that time is relative to us, so it could well be that God, in a sense, is some concept. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Presence from whatever God is, from the God point of view, the past, the present, and the future are all open. So that um, it could be, remember, it could be that the very dimension of time is a human dimension. It is from our perspective there's past, present, and future. But it could be that someone could design a physics equation in which that's not true. That in the physics, the past, the present, and the future are, are somehow simultaneous. That they curve. They're not linear. But from our point of view, it is. yud heh vav -Hey means the past, present, and the future all in one. Another thing it could mean is just that it is the fact that everything is, it, it is time itself. Everything is changing all the time. Everything is in a state of change. Everything is a state of motion. And when you think about it, when the rabbi says that as a Kabbalist or as a mystic, I believe that God, God as king means that the laws of the universe fill the universe, what a law is, it is a principle that governs change. Right? So if there's a law of parenting that says, if you're your kid, every time they do wrong, you'll spoil them. You're describing a law that covers time. In other words, if you keep doing this, this will happen. Laws are basically what govern time. They're saying, if you do this in T1, by T2, and by T3, if I give you a law of thermodynamics, right? If I say, well, you know, uh, PV over T is PV over T. Pressure times volume over, t over temperature is always pressure times volume over temperature, regardless. I'm basically saying that, you know, um, this glass of wine is the same whether you freeze it or not. Because if you freeze it, it is still PV over T because it's just the T's change. But the PV have altered to be the same thing. And you're like, what? And I'm just saying to you that what thermodynamics is. You're doing a good job right, of that. Right, exactly. But what it all laws. I mean, the very word, a law doesn't mean anything in a picture frame. If I just take a snapshot of, of, of me, there's no law governing it. You have to have motion. You have to be like, well, if the rabbi talks too much, he gets hoarse. It's cause and effect. Cause and effect requires some concept of um, past, present, and future. And what a law is, is some principle that's governing it. Right? If I drop this, it falls. If all that is a snapshot, there's no way to know what falling is. So that, that um, what it means that God is a melech is that everything is operating according to laws, the laws of change. The laws between one moment and another. Otherwise, there's no such thing as a law. You just have a snapshot. So I, I heard a picture from Ted Talk. This last week, actually, talking about time and concept of time. And you're correct. In physics, time is irrelevant. Right. You, you can plug in time forward, backwards. The, the equations are the same. But the, one of the things, the one person he talked about, he said, the only true constants, the only true things are the past. It already occurred. It's set in stone. The future, because it's coming. The present is an illusion. Right. And the reason he said the present is an illusion, because we... In, there is no present. There is no present. Because as soon as you talk about it, it's gone. It's past. And that's exactly what we saw in the burning bush, which is the very meaning of God's name, is that we, our brain, and, and, and Judaism isn't the only one who's sort of come up with this. Buddhism's very oriented to it as well, which is that the human mind works by taking snapshots. 
right? When I think of Lynn and I think of my girls, I think of a picture, like in the back, right? Or one of these. I got my Ziva, I got my Marav, I got my Lynn, I got a me. All of that's artificial. I'm basing it on a snapshot, but Ziva's two years older than she was there. But my brain thinks of it as the same girl, right? Um, as you get older, and I'm not trying to pretend I'm super old, but I'm in my 50s, um, I start to realize that the person I was in my 20s and 30s, like, I'm really not like them anymore. Like, I don't even know what I have in common. By being married to Lynn, I have changed so much that I don't know what the use is of talking about the things I liked and cared about back then because I've changed so much. I mean, we get so obsessed by telling our story and this, we get obsessed with this idea that, oh, in order to understand me, sweetie, in order to understand me, congregants, in order to understand me, friends, you'd have to understand what my mom was like and what my dad was like and what I had to put up with and this terrible experience I had in college when I was 18 and then this way I was saved by a man. It's all crap. You don't need any of that. You just don't. It's all an illusion. Like, no, let me show you my photo album and you'll see the thread that goes through the whole thing. I am whatever I am now. I've changed a lot. The things I care about have changed. Um, I'm, and they're changing all the time, too. I mean, I'm just not that interested anymore in telling you what I cared about last year. Right? If you're like, Rabbi, I remember last year you gave us a vision presentation on the synagogue. Right? Where's, where's Evan? He's my partner in crime. Right? So I'm like, I did my PowerPoint, and I'm really proud of it. Evan and God and I got together, and we were like back and forth, like, what do you think of slide two? And what do you think of slide four? And then, you know, like President Congregation comes up to me recently and is like, one of these days we're going to talk about your vision presentation from a year and a half ago. You know, I bet you can't wait. And I'm like, I don't even know if that's my vision anymore. Like, I mean, in other words, I can try to get back into it, but why bother? I should just make a new one. Like, it, 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 the moment's gone. You know, I was all excited about it back then. But, like, it, but, so I'm saying is the brain works by saying, no, you are a fixed character going through your heroic uh, odyssey journey in life. But the truth is that from God's point of view, you're changing so much all of the time. And you should embrace the change. And you, the goal is to say, where are you in this moment? Okay, going back to this. Where are you coming from? Where are you? And where are you going? The divine point of view is to see you in the dimension of how you are becoming something else. What Saul said is, in a way, the present is actually the biggest illusion of all. So often people say to me, dude, religion's about living in the present moment. And I'm like, I know, I used to think that. Now I know there is no present moment. They're like, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, you just blew my mind. And I'm like, yeah, I heard the TED talk. You know, like, in other words, like, Let's not even talk about the present moment. It's just another delusion about like who am I in this moment. So what the Amidah is actually trying to get you to do is to see yourself in this movement of past, present, and future. And the way the Amidah does that is to move Kabbalistically. So it moves in a Kabbalistic pattern, and that pattern is this. It's the pattern you'll also find in the Saturday morning service. It's the pattern you'll find repeated in the progression of the Jewish holidays. It is the Jewish pattern, which is um, part one is nature or creation. You always start with creation, right? I mean, like, so creation and nature are the same word. On, on so that you start the service in the morning, as you know, um, Nishma, Kolachai, Tevarechet, Shimkadonai, Eloheinu. 
all, everything that is filled with life is already praising your name. And then you keep going with all of this stuff. Nature, 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 nature. The field is full of song. The sky is full of song. The ocean's full of song. The dolphins are making songs. The birds are making songs. And you're like, enough of this long service. And then you hit a transition. It's all about nature creation. And then you get to revelation. Um, and uh, actually, it's a little true. Revelation is, um, well, that's not exactly true in the service, so I'll move on to this. The next step is revelation. What do you do with your life? What is your particular purpose, and what's the purpose of humanity? And then, if you get to, like, the Mashiach, if you get to the Messiah, you get to redemption. You get redeemed. And the way this works in the Amidah is Vayahulu hashamahim v'haharetz. The heavens, the creation, nature was completed by God. Saturday morning, you get to Vishamru v'nei Yisrael. You get to the fact that there was a, there's no Torah on Friday night. There's a Torah revealed to you. There's a, the, you're, you, in a way, you come out of nature, you're part of this flow, and what, where are you going? What is your next step? And then, at this time, maybe half an hour ago, when you get to Shabbos afternoon, you hit reconciliation, you hit redemption, and you hit perfect rest. So, and, and so, or you can talk about a different pattern. Let's do an entirely different pattern, which would be, in the evening, you experience the, I need a big poster of this. So if this, these are the Kabbalistic energies, in the evening, it, go, it goes this way to that way. In the evening, with nightfall, every night, but especially on Shabbat, you get love. Evening is about forgiveness, love, um, no judgment, just chesed, just loving kindness. You get to the morning, you move over this way, and you get to Gevura. You get to revelation, and you get to judgment. Revelation means limitation. If God says, you're going to do it this way and not that way, that's a limitation on your becoming. If God says, I know, Rav Nadav, you really want to be a Buddhist and, and go to India and meditate, but no, then that's a limitation. Gevura is a limitation. If it's chesed, and my kids say, Rafi just gave me this really big bar of elite chocolate, chesed is, you guys can have it now. Like, like enjoy. Chesed is absolutely. Like, and they're like, we have the best dad ever. Right? And that's Shabbos night. Shabbos night is dessert. It's seconds. It's thirds. Do you want a second cup of wine? Do you want a third glass of wine? Of course, no one's driving. It's perfectly fine. I'll walk you home. So like Shabbos night, you get all the desserts you want. And that's the way I grew up too, by the way, basically. Saturday morning, limitation. When you bring out the Torah, you're different. You're not the same as all the other nations. And you know what? Your path in the future, Saul, your path in the future, Naomi, your path in the future, Gigi, the next step for you as you are changing and evolving, it's not going to be the same as it is for everybody else. It's going to be different so that it's limitation. It's, it is with my girls where I say, oh, Rafa gave you that beautiful bar of Israeli chocolate. That's so swell. You can't have it now. <laughs> All right? It'll ruin your summer. 
That is, that's the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, women, Nadav, you love women, don't you? Yeah, but you only get one now, right? No coveting, no adultery. I'm like, really? Absolutely, right? So, like, I mean, like, that's the way it's going to be. So, like, in other words, your path forward is going to involve one path to the exclusion of others. That's from this moment on. And that is, and that is, you can't have the chocolate now. That is, that's, and, and that is, like, I'm going to love you, but the fact is you didn't do your homework, and so you're not going to get your dessert or you didn't eat your vegetables, so that there is a way to be. And so then, if you balance, you go from chesed, Friday night, into Saturday morning, taking out the Torah, by mincha, by Shabbat afternoon, you get to tiferet, which is the perfect balance of the two. It's the heart of the divine energy, and it, it, it translates into English as splendor. And then you're like, now I get it. Let me go back to the Amidah here. I got some splendor stuff going on. I was always wondering. Get you get to mincha, the time to come, redemption, tranquility. Um, sorry, it goes. Um, you are you, right. You are singular. Your character is singular. Who is like you? It's all singular. And then the tranquility of full trustworthiness. The tranquility of um, wholeness and confidence and noiselessness and security. Unimpaired tranquility that you take pleasure in. May your family be fully aware that their tranquility derives from you, and may they declare holy your character through their tranquility, and the focus on splendor, the focus on tiferet, the beauty of God, of energies being perfectly in balance. So there's a flow from past to present to where I'm heading into the future, and then a peacefulness that having a sense of what one's next step, and when one's in their next step, they have combined um, the love and the direction, and then you start to realize that there are mystical hints within the prayer itself. So even if you just go to, well, here, you can either do the Hebrew or the English, or the where are you coming from, where are you going, where are you now. If you go to Arvit, the evening service, um, you realize you get ataki dashta, you make holy the seventh day, and, and you get uverachto mikol ha'amim, and you blessed it. And then you get Vayechulu Hashem, Vayechal, and Vayevarech, and Vayekadesh. So you notice some puns. Vayechulu means, and they were finished. They were completed. And Vayechaya means, and you completed. And if you say God completed her, then you say Kila. Adonai Kila. You completed her, the Ha'aretz, the, the earth. And Kila is a pun on the word Kala, which means bride. And you're like, oh, Friday night was about Chesed. It's about love. It's about the bride. And here it is. And God, you completed nature. You completed her. And that sounds just like saying kala, which sounds, and you brided her. You married us. We, and then you realize what other words are in here after chal, 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 meaning uh, a pun on completed and, and um, bride. You get vayavarach and vayikadesh. You blessed and you made holy. What are the two parts of the Jewish wedding ceremony? You get the Sheva Brachot, and you get the blessings. You bless Sheva Brachot and Kiddushin. The Sheva Brachot are actually the Kiddushin. The wedding ceremony is the seven blessings which make a holiness, a separation, a distinction, a uh, designated as holy. So you see that there's a hint in this blessing of nature, this blessing of where, what are we a part of? In this moment of my becoming, I came out of something. What I came out of is not, oh, my brothers, I had sibling rivalry. Not like I had a great mentor when I was in 12th grade. I come out of it all. 
I am like a little blob that emerged on this timeline out of it all, out of the whole thing. And so that you're saying the whole thing, it, it's, it was this, um, it's, it's all of creation, it's all of nature. And so as I come out of it, it's like I was part of this wedding ceremony of blessing and holiness and completion. And so we do L'Chadoti on Friday night, which is a mystical thing. And it's love and partnership. I was made to be in this world. And then on Saturday morning, we head into the words of Tifer, Tifartech Barshanatata, the words Mbiahava, uh, words in the Amidah of, of Torah, of redemption, of meaning and purpose. And one of the things in that is that, um, I can't help but saying this just to get a rise out of you, uh, which is that uh, in the prayers, you have a, a reference to um, that Moses is God's servant, Biado, by God's hand, Biado. Where, where do you find a yad, a hand, on Saturday morning? Good, in the Torah reading. All right? Now, if what Shabbat is, is it's where in the week we go by our kind of deceived view of things, my picture taking, my sense of self, which is very ego driven. And on Shabbat, I'm merging back into the oneness, I'm merging back into embracing how I'm evolving and I'm changing, and God is the laws of change, and I'm trying to get back to the source of that change and understand it. And then, um, and, and, and we view this as, with Friday night, this love relationship with God, that somehow the Torah is meant for me, and, and I merge with God. There's a union, a mystical union. And so what they say is the reference to God, at, the reference to Moses on Saturday morning in the Amidah as God's hand is actually the connection of these two. So Yesod is Yad. Yesod is... Um, male organ, and malchut is shechina. Malchut is feminine organ. And if it's a combination of male and female energies, then it's, if you're saying, dude, I totally feel that there's like a female energy going on, and that there's a male energy going on in this room, or in, the, or in God, then you're talking about these frequencies of energy at the bottom. And so actually, they view the reading of Torah, so Rafi, you go home and tell Shuli this, which is that they view it as a, uh, as a recreation of the sexual act. So that the yod is the penis, because th this is the frequency of penis. And the Torah, it looks like two thighs, and the Torah represents the feminine energy of God, the Shekhinah, the Mahut. And so that when you're actually reading Torah, you are, you are combining, you are actually having a, a parallel act of intercourse. Um, of because you've taken the Lachadodi marriage ceremony of Friday night, and now you're in a way continuing the consummation on Saturday morning by taking it into the Torah. So I once said that in front of Jerry Burstein eight or nine years ago, and Jerry said, Rav Nadav, we really like having you here at Ner Tamid, but never ever say that again. Okay, so um, he was so funny. Jerry was the best, so uh, you remember? Uh, so, um, so Jerry's like, that was great, never again. I know, exactly. Right, so now it's like, I can never go to services again. And then you get to mincha, and the word echad, 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 which means, um, uh, so what is yichud? Yichud comes from the same word. So, so if you're in a marriage ceremony, right, and we had Friday night was um, 
me merging mystically with the oneness and in and, and, and like a marriage ceremony. And Saturday morning is me receiving my path and my revelation and, and, and where I need to go forward and, and continues the, the, the consort act. And then we have the same sexual metaphor, which is yichud is at the end of the marriage ceremony. What do you do? Once the bride and groom um, recess, where do they go? They go to yichud, which means seclusion, where they're supposed to consummate the marriage if they're virginal, right? And um, so that they're officially married. Because in the Bible, there's no marriage ceremony. There's just sex. If you have sex with someone, you're married. And if you don't want to stay with them, then you have to pay a price of divorce. So you, you, uh, you take yeah. back all the sex? Right, right, what? Can you take back all the sex? Yeah. <laughs> you have to charge for it, basically. Um, and so, like, so, it, so um, yichud is the same word as achad. It means not just seclusion, it is intercourse. It is, it is becoming one flesh. Um, and so you see the word echad, 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 which is at this point, you are in this perfect minucha, this perfect restful state of balance. So the process of the Amidah is reminding you of God being becoming. It's reminding you that um, where am I, that this day is about experiencing the world as just fine the way it is, and then connecting inside to like, how do I come out of my past? Where am I now? How, what, is, what are the laws that are governing me now? And how do they spell a path for me forward? And then it's supposed to give you this perfect sense of mystical and meditative unity in the Amidah. Like, so the Shabbos afternoon, with the dusk and the sun setting, you're supposed to be in like this perfect kind of state of feeling like, kind of like I know who I am now. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm really refreshed because I'm not worn out. I'm, I'm refreshed in the way that I know my past, my present, and now I'm moving forward into the week. And I'm going to do it all again in seven days. So you're actually connecting the energies around you, and you're tying into them. And, they're, and, if, you, and if you read further, you'll see that on the other page where I basically have them written out with the blessing on the bottom, it, it also gives you other, basically, um, some Kabbalistic meanings. Um, A couple of them very quickly are that uh, if you say where are you from in Hebrew, you say me'ayin ata, me'ayin ata, where, where, are you, where are you coming from, right? It has a mystical meaning because ayin is, wait, wait. Me'ayin bata, where you from, me'ayin bata. Well, yeah, but if you're saying, like, but if you say, like, where, where are you from, me'ayin ata, Ayin is the name of this one. So like each of the ten frequencies of divine energy have a name and a purpose. Feminine energy, masculine energy, forgiving, love, enveloping, joyful energy, limitation for your own good, so that you know what you know, um, not just that you can do anything, but the revelation, laws, path, the, what makes you different, um, accountability. But the top one is actually the ayin, the, the nothingness of pure change. The nothingness of the fact that at each moment you are part of this great web of change. And so that you have, a myth, the Kabbalists play on that a lot. So if someone says, if a Kabbalist, if a mystic says to you something like, it's definitely where are you from? They're, they're, they're kind of toying with you. 
Because on the one hand, it sounds like a totally normal question. I'm from Philadelphia. But on the other hand, what they're really trying to say is it's not a question. They're saying, may I anata, you come from this web of I can mean where, but it can also mean um, nothingness. The, the pure, pure, pure impermanence, pure change. Pure, pure the moment, pure God. And so they're actually kind of uh, giving you some kind of like Yoda-like doublespeak. Um, a, a couple of other ones I already put up there about, um, I put up about the couple, about the wedding ceremony. Um, I put a couple of other things. Is there Hamzat uh, Yamim? I did Oto. A little bit of, I did the tefillin one over here, which is that, um, that that's also in L'Chadodi. Um, each of these has a color. Every frequency of the divine energy has a color associated with it. And I also mentioned some of those. But leaving that out for a second. Okay, so I know I gave like a very long presentation about, about the Amidah. Any questions or comments? Besides, never talk about that again. <laughs> well, I have sure. a question. I mean, obviously, you can lots of prayers, reflecting your tablets put together, didn't start from the origin. This is right. not original. Uh, Jews back at uh, just post-Moses' time probably didn't pray the same way as they did in Babylonian times as they did in the Middle Ages times. Right. These things have developed. Now, did it come by by a group of, like by committee that, that they came over? Let's have these ideas. And if so, has Judaism finally come to the point where oh, we're perfect, we're complete? There is no more progression. Is there? Is it, is it still progressing? In terms of the way, like the prayers were composed the way now. The prayers composed, the way the you know, to me, it's so mysterious. It's really kind of mysterious how the prayers came together in Tractate Brachot, which David and Becky are teaching on Saturday afternoon, and and and. I, I'm part of that too. Uh, every other week after services, you see how some of the prayers were put together, but it's still partly theoretical about like where they came from. We have a sense of what centuries most of the prayers come from, but just to put a very basic question that we don't have an answer to, is that if you ask me just the basic question, was this was this part of the Amidah that changes? on Shabbat at night, in the morning, in the afternoon, which otherwise it never changes, was it written by Kabbalists? We don't know the answer to that. So could it be that all of these allusions in there are accidental? Like, in other words, the Kabbalists later said, have you noticed the pun? Have you noticed this? Have you noticed biado? Have you noticed this? Or could it have been composed? Because I said the Amidah probably had its roots in Kabbalistic prayers. Or was it composed Kabbalistic? And we have no idea. And it, it really is to me, that, to me. I mean, and it's the same idea, which is, is Kabbalah, a, 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 it, are these kinds of views of God and frequencies and energies and, and time, were they, just some, were they just the 8% of hippies among the rabbis? Were they just the 8% of, of people who, who were into that kind of thing? Or was it mainstream? And we don't know the answer. I, I, you know, my view is that well, I mean, I think we, my, my view is that it was, it was more likely more mainstream because if you look at something like, um, if you're trying to, uh, even if you just pick up the Mishnah. So if the Mishnah is, is the earliest part of the Talmud. It was published in 200, and the rest of the Talmud completes around 800 CE. So the Mishnah is definitely the earliest part. And if you look at the Mishnah, 
there are a lot of rabbis, including the main ones, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir, and they are talking about mystical contemplation to see the archangel of Raphael and to see the archangel of Gabriel and Mikael and to see God on God's throne and to see that God's throne is surrounded by a floor of sapphire. And the word for frequency of energy is the word sphira, which is either the word sphere or it's the word sapphire. No one knows really which one it is. Um, and so you're like, wait a second. You're telling me you got a text that's basically pre-Talmudic, and it's pretty long text, the Mishnah. And you're talking about all the rabbis hanging out and like looking and having visions of, of Ezekiel's vision of God on the throne. And then they say things like, but other people shouldn't do too much of this. That looks like they were pretty into this stuff. So maybe when they wrote these prayers, they were Kabbalistic. They, they, were, they were into this stuff, and that's the stuff they did. And someone else may say, oh, that's crazy. The Kabbalists were just some fruity weirdos who, who were on the fringes. They were, they were, they were the hippies. Um, so, like, so I would think that, that, that I, I think that what, I mean, and, and maybe you could just say it's wishful thinking. I think the rabbis who cared about thinking about the nature of God were into this stuff from a very early period. And I think that most rabbis just don't care. And as you know, when you don't know something about the past, the best way to approach it, in my opinion, is to say, well, what are people like today? Because I really just don't think things change much. And I think it's exactly like it is today. You walk into an Orthodox yeshiva, and you say to them, what do you think God is? And half of them or a third of them don't believe in God. And then you're like, well, why are you staying in yeshiva? And they're like, well, why wouldn't I? You have something against Shabbos? I mean, like, it's a beautiful life. You don't like my mom and my dad? They're very nice. We'll have you over for lunch. And then you're like, but if you don't believe in God, why are you doing any of this stuff? And they're like, I don't even know what you mean. It's like, you think every Amish person, you think every Mormon is like, oh, yeah, I'm completely 1,000% down with this crazy Mormon stuff. Like, no, they're like, I like being a Mormon. It's my family. I think it's awesome. I'm not really sure about some of the things, but publicly I'll say I think that it all sounds right to me. So, um, so in other words, most people don't care about the theology. And, 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 and to be a part of a religion and part of a culture, and those who do, I think most of them are Kabbalistic. Uh, yeah. Do you think that, that, therefore, what we're doing now, in 200 years, will be any different? Is it evolving still? Or are we now, now stuck with something? For the algae. I, I think this, and, and, um, and, and I love the question, which is that, and, and you guys let me talk about my ideas, but this is it. Um, Back in my journey, which, as I told you, doesn't mean anything, um, I cared a whole heck of a lot for a big part of my life about arguing that religion was different than science, but equally valid. And I don't care that much anymore about that. So um, what I think now is that the way we, that the most important thing for each of us is how do you understand the universe, your place in it, and how it works? And that means scientifically and religiously. So what I mean by that, Saul, is you say, are these things evolving? I think so. Because for me, my scientific views definitely influence my life. And I don't mean because I get to use a computer. I'm not talking about cheap stuff like that. I'm talking about the paradigms for the way I think the world works. And so I'll give you two easy examples you may have heard. One is that when I was young, I believed in Darwin. And most philosophers have for 100 years. And we all thought what Darwin was saying is that the way the world works is we compete for resources. And those who adapt better 
and get to the resources instead of the people who don't, that um, they win. And that's the basis of capitalism in this country. It's the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism that Max Weber wrote about, which was completely influenced by Darwin in this country. But that's not where the science is anymore, and we've talked about that. The science is Darwin's completely misunderstood, and to the extent that you think he said that, he was wrong. That basically, um, the world doesn't work as a competition for resources. It works as symbiotic ecosystems where that you find a place within a system in which you can play a role and contribute and other people are playing other roles or other species work with you to contribute to the system so it stays in balance. And now when I was young, that was hippie. I used to watch a movie called Koyaanisqatsi, which was basically, the whole thing was this Hopi theory, Hopi Indian theory that of going into balance. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool, dude. But now I realize like, that's what the science is. In other words, it's not that I used to be like, oh, like we have to be more into balance. The science is that it's all about balance. When you throw the system out of balance, crazy things happen, right? And um, that, so we have to understand the global warming, all those kinds of, so I view my family as an ecosystem and I view the congregation as an ecosystem. And when I wish for shalom, I don't, I, I, a shalom means, means har harmony. It means system balance. So what I think the science is saying influences my way of moving around in the world spiritually because it provides us the metaphors. And another thing could just be every single teenager I have. This year I'm going to do for the teens a philosophy discussion course. And one of the things I will bring up is free will. And every teen I know believes that if every event has a cause, then there can't be free will. Right? That would, that's the science 20 years ago. The science today is that not every event has a cause in a linear fashion. That that is real Newtonian. And that is definitely not what's coming out of physics today. So for example, there is genuine randomness in the universe. There is genuine chaos. Fractal theory is incredibly important. So the idea that one random change can change the entire ecosystem is vital. So the answer is, that's really nice that you think you can stump the rabbi on free will by saying that every event has a cause, which means that there is no free will, because you have to go back and check the fact that every event doesn't have a predictable cause and a predictable outcome. It just doesn't. So go back, and get, go back and get more accurate science and then come back. So the answer, the, the question that Saul originally asked, can we evolve in our views of God? I think absolutely, because as science evolves, we're going to understand better the best working theories for how the laws of change actually operate. And I care about what those are, and I think that will always inform theology. So it's theology that we are the triumphant Christians who have to overcome all of the pagans and others because it's Darwinian? Or is it the fact that, whoa, we're all in an ecosystem, and if one, if one group is killing another group, they're throwing the whole thing out of balance? It, it's influenced by what we think is true about the way the world really works. So in that sense, theology will change according to how we understand that the way the world is working. There's no question that like the Amidah is, is a mantra. That It's a long mantra, but the idea is... Um, when you memorize, let's say you memorize the Amidah and you don't know what it means. Is that bad? My attitude is not necessarily, right? Om may not mean anything, but if you say Om over and over again, it can produce a very interesting spiritual state. So I think that the idea is that one of the reasons that, that you've got to put in the work with the service to have it pay off is that when you know the Amidah more or less by memory, and even if you're following along with your finger or something, when you do a mantra, you're basically 
fooling your mind. That, and you guys probably know, I mean, I think what a Kabbalist is saying is this. We are all designed to be misled. That unfortunately, the same kinds of faculties in our brain that um, help us succeed in the world are the ones that mislead us spiritually, like our ego. And that, so a lot of the spiritual practices we do, prayers, mitzvot, other things, they're about fooling you. They're, 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 they're about tricking you it, out of your foolish ways. And they're, they're, um, they're very playful in, in a very strange way. So one of the things is just to be like, okay, um, you have to get up and recite this mantra that's four pages long. So if you do it, then you start to realize, wait a second, as I'm doing this thing that I've memorized, my mind is straying. Right? Because when you do om, 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 and then slowly your mind starts to wander. And it wanders in a different way than like when you're watching TV or something. You're, you're basically occupying a part of your brain that you want to, um, uh, you know how like sometimes I tell my kid, go out to the swing set and swing so daddy can have a moment, right? You just did that to your brain. Here, recite five pages of Amidah, right? Good. Now that you've gone for a walk, now I can finally do some thinking. So that you, and you start to realize that like, this is amazing. I am praying and I'm doing something, but my mind is now drifting over to this other place. And as you know, like whether it's yoga or meditation, I'm achieving calm. I'm creating a space for new ideas to come into my head. Um, and so that in a way, you're, in a way you're shifting the energies just by doing this as a mantra. And that's really helpful. So if someone says, it's a terrible thing that people do the prayers and don't know what they mean, it depends what you, you, th you mean by terrible. I mean, I think the prayers have some really interesting meanings. But it's not a terrible thing if someone does the Amidah by memory, if they actually get into a spiritual state where they think something else. Like, and and where, where they're basically doing, um, or even just having silence. I mean, it, it's an amazing thing to still your mind, you know, and... and, and to cultivate silence, which the Amidah is about silence. So, so I think that the answer is that, that it, it, it both manipulates, it, does, it is supposed to manipulate the immediate energies. Also, it's like anything any of, you, any of us do that's, that's good for ourselves. I don't enjoy walking. I, I just don't. I mean, God bless you all who like to take these long walks. But the thing is that if I make myself take a walk, do I feel better? I do. Does my body feel better? I do. Is my mind clearer? Yes. So part of it is like if I could tell you all, what if I could make you come to services, even though I know you don't want to, but I made you come all the time. Trust me, you would feel better. I mean, you would. I mean, the, the, the states you get into, the mental states, the fact that you sit there and you're like, look, let's say you fall asleep. You'll feel better after that nap. I guarantee you. I always do. Right? And then Shari will feed you. And you'll feel even better after that. Or maybe you sit there and you space out on something about like I'm really struggling with something with... Um, this thing at my boss. And you get an idea. I'm like, well, that's, you probably wouldn't have got an idea staying home watching TV. You probably wouldn't have got an idea hitting Panera again. I mean, so like, you know, give us a shot. You know, but, you know, people have such lofty expectations, you know, and you get out of anything what you put into it. You know, you go to yoga once and you think you're going to like hit Nirvana. Good luck. You know, a bit, anything, whether it's walking, whether it's yoga, whether it's changing your diet. I want to eat pizza and ice cream, right? Do I feel better when I've had salad for three days? I do. I really, really do. 
I enjoy a good glass of wine, right? But when I haven't had caffeine or alcohol for a week, the first three days are hell. But then when your doctor is yelling at you that you should do this, thank you, doctor, who has a glass of wine in his hand, after giving me years of advice that I should. Um, no, salt was mostly on me about the caffeine. Last week's study in Nurse Warner, those moderate Well, now Dr. Gossi is trying to get me to give up caffeine. So, um, but what I mean is, like, you would, when you, any of these practices you adopt, um, you know, I don't know, you may not want to go to the uh, Poway Adult School. But once you take a couple of courses and you get, like, you will feel better. Like, so part of it is that I feel like um, we live in a world, um, I mean, you know, Nietzsche said this a lot, which is like, God, no one seems to have the energy for anything anymore. He said that in the 1800s. But I feel the same way. Everyone wants easy. You know, it's like, we're, like you know, Nietzsche said, what are we even fit for anymore? Like, we just want to, and Dostoevsky said the same thing. They were very similar. Just want, people just want to sit around and be like the rich people. That's what Dostoevsky said. They're like, oh, the rich people have a carriage. I want a carriage. Rich people, you know, I don't know. They order the Kardashian stuff. I want to order the Kardashian <laughs> stuff. You know, so it's like, like, what are we even fit for anymore? It takes effort to put into anything, but then your energies really will shift, so it doesn't have to be services. But yeah, everyone's like, well, you know, I don't really like services. That's fine, but like, it, it does change you. I mean, I don't really want to get up and go to services on Saturday morning. I'm really sorry to, if you are under the illusion that I just can't wait. It's like, no, I want to sleep in, and, uh, but, and, you know, and I don't want to get up at 6 a.m. to study Torah commentary so I can give a decent sermon and Torah discussion. I really want to stay in bed. Um, and, but the truth is that I'm almost always happy I did it. You know, it was probably better than me sleeping late and reading the paper again. I mean, how much, um, you know, so it, you know, it, 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 because we're trying to shift these energies. I'm sorry, go ahead. Ellie, wait, what? You want to turn it down, the air conditioning? Um, sure, I can. Um, Link, you turn it, could I turn it up a degree? Oh, is it more cold? Too cold. Yeah. Ellie says it's too cold. It's yeah, because you are exactly. right in the line. No, no, no. So you got to tell me. I, I, you can. Be, I can get you a blanket too. But you turn it up so it'll turn off, and in about a minute it'll shut down. Um, let me. Let me. Um, let me shift to another text for a second. And if you want to, I can just read it to you, or I can pass it out. And it is, I'll split it up. It's two sides of a page, but it's just this one. I think it fits with what we're saying. Let's see. So this text is from the 13th century. One of the students of the pretty out there Kabbalist Avraham Abulafia. And this is from a Kabbalist work called Shari Tzedek, The Gates of Righteousness. And one of the reasons it comes up based on at least the way I answered a question maybe poorly is that what is prayer? So prayer can be many things. We don't have to limit it to one definition. But one thing could be it's a spiritual practice to enter into a different mental state. And this is what he said. He said, why do we utter letters and move them around? So one of the things in Kabbalistic, whatever, in mystical practices is that, you know what? Maybe you don't have to mean what you say. Maybe it's a mantra. And you know what? 
The other thing they do is they do visualization practices, which you find in all forms of meditation. Imagine a yud there, imagine a hay there, imagine a bob there, and imagine another hay. Now imagine on them on top of each other. Now imagine them circling around each other. Now imagine them entering into each other. I'm not a very visual person, so I'm not good at visual, but that's also part of what a prayer could be, is you could just do a visual um, exercise with it. So it says, why do we utter these letters and move them around? I, just a beginner, will tell you what I personally experienced. When I was young, I felt a desire to study Torah. Remember, this is from the 1200s. I learned parts of the Torah and some of the rest of the Tanah, but I didn't study Talmud. I suppose I could have found a Talmud teacher, but I preferred to be at home living my normal life. Finally, God gave me strength to search for deeper meanings of the Torah. I went out, I searched, and I found. For several years, I studied Talmud abroad, and but still the fire of Torah burned within me, though I could not sense it. In other words, Talmud didn't feed my soul. I returned to my homeland, and God brought me together with a teacher of Jewish philosophy with whom I studied, Moses Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. It's a philosophical work. It's very, um, but it has a mystical quality. And this made me want to learn more, added to my desire. I began to explore logic and natural science. Maimonides was a scientist. He was a famous physician, and he's very mathematical. This knowledge tastes sweet, for as you know, nature attracts nature. God is my witness, if I had not previously acquired strength of faith through the little I'd learned of Torah and Talmud, many of the mitzvot would have been ruined for me by studying science and philosophy, even though I went into them with the best of intentions. So this is the argument of the Kabbalists. Why wasn't Kabbalah taught to all the people? Why was it just taught rabbi to rabbi? And the reason it was only taught rabbi to rabbi is they felt that people would stop being religious. They felt if they didn't think God was up on a throne listening to your prayers and then giving you good points so that you can get into heaven when you die, that people would stop doing it. And you know what? I think they're right. I'd like to teach to everybody, but I'm probably wrong because I'm surrounded by people. I mean, like, if I could convince all of you that if it came to Shul more, you would get points to get you into heaven, I'd probably have more people in the pews. I mean, so like they had a good point back then. They were probably right. But so he's like, it's a good thing. I was raised in a good home and I studied a little Talmud or else once I learned all the science and stuff, I would have been done with the mitzvah. Um, But it was inadequate. Then God had me meet a holy man, a Kabbalist, who taught me the outlines of Kabbalah. Nevertheless, because of my smattering of natural science, the path of Kabbalah seemed to me nearly impossible. This idea, you're going to manipulate letters, you're, you're going to say prayers, you're going to do mantras. I'm a scientific person. Give me a break. In other words, back to Nietzsche, which is, what does anybody fit for anymore? Everyone wants, everything has to immediate. And you know, I also listen to TED Talks, but they're evil because they, they, they all have the same moral, which is in 10 minutes, I can give you a life hack. You know what I mean? And I'm like, but really you walk away. What if, you know, a life hack, a bumper sticker, you know. You want some bumper stickers? Where Read Pierre K. Avot. Right? The, but, so you have a lot of really, really great bumper stickers. It doesn't really make your life any better. Life only gets better when you put something into it. Right? And so, so my teacher said to me, my son, here you are, you're skeptical of something you haven't even tried. Try it before you judge it. If you do not discover anything, and don't blame yourself if you don't, then go ahead and say there's nothing in it. Wherever he guided me, he would always define the matter for me in scientific terms to sweeten it for me so that my rational mind would accept it and I would be more enthusiastic. Because remember, he's going to start teaching him. There are, tw- there are 10 frequencies of invisible energy, and then they're even different colors, and they're in this room, and when there's love energy, there's this white energy. And when, and when I'm saying, wait, 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 Siva, if I, and I'm telling you, hey, you know, if you have too much chocolate and pizza and uh, too much uh, caffeine and alcohol, you're not going to feel good. Then I'm giving you red energy. 
the red energy of like their laws and they're operating on you and you're leading yourself astray if you're saying, come on, I'm entitled to whatever I want. So like, what? He's scientific? You're telling me there are invisible energies and frequencies and, 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 and shades to it? So he said, oh, think of it scientifically. He sweetened it for me. Okay. I reason as follows. Look, I got something to gain. I got nothing to lose. If I discover something I've gained, if not, what I already have will still be mine. So I placed myself on the path and he showed me how to permute the letters of the alphabet to combine them and play with them through meditative techniques. So some of the Kabbalistic works work with taking Hebrew letters and, and prayers and visualizing them and moving them around. I learned these things for four months, and then he commanded me to erase everything. He said to me, my son, the goal here is not to grasp the finite form or image. Rather, the path of names is meant to have your mind work toward the incomprehensible. The less comprehensible, the higher. Eventually, you will reach an energy that is not in your control. Rather, your mind and thought are in its control. So in a way, he's saying, if I understand him right, which is, you're still being too literal with the mantra. You're still being too literal with the visual mantra. It's supposed to occupy a part of your brain to free the other part to play. It reminds me of the spelling bee. It's just awesome. Was that like the B season or no. the B season? Yeah. Right, 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 right. No, we're, we're it's the letters and how she comes mm -hmm. that state. It's a great movie and it is on Amazon Prime. So, um, which I believe the B season with Richard Gere and it was a beautiful book. They made it into a movie where um, it, it combines Kabbalistic ideas with spelling bee. Thank you. That's an awesome movie. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, what I'm saying is. These kinds of techniques, whether you'll find a mantra in every single culture it, for those who are interested, and you'll also find visual meditation for those that it works for. And basically, um, you know, it's like how yoga works for some people, but not for everyone. There are different forms of yoga, and there are different forms of meditation. So this is a visual one. It's never really worked for me. Mantra, mantric, which is purely repetitive, works much better for me. Um, and there are different things that work for different people. But, you know, like one of the things is, you know, you, you, you see these guys, you know, whatever, mostly guys, and, and they're shuffling and they're doing their prayers. And you've got to say to yourself, oh, if only I knew the meanings of the prayers. Do you really think they're saying, oh, God of Abraham, that was a good one. God of Isaac, you know, he was good too. God of Jacob, he's my favorite. You know, like every word, their meaning, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, like, no. I mean, like part of it is th th they're in a flow. You know what I mean? And they've done it three times a day. And, you know, and, they're like, and the idea is clearly, and do you even have to believe in God to do that? I don't think so. Like, in other words, that's what I'm saying. You'd be amazed how many Yeshiva Bukhars say, what is God? What's the nature of God? Is God up in the sky? Why all the questions? Like, in other words, it's not interesting to me. The most important part of philosophy I ever learned was that it was really a very Jewish thing, which is, I'm sorry that you're so obsessed with that question, it's just not that interesting a question to me, right? Oh, is there really free will if everything is caused? I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry you're obsessed with that, but I could care less. Like, I mean, because it seems to me that we have free will, and it seems to me I have control over my decision. Is love just pheromones? And you and Lynn just have a pheromone attraction. I'm like, well, that's really nice if you're obsessed with that, but for me, I love my wife. She loves me. I'm really lucky. And it, I certainly have the experience of love and I have experience of relationship, and so it's not a very interesting question whether it all comes down to pheromones. I, I just don't care. But if you do, like, that's great. Why don't you go give a TED Talk on it? You know, so like, I mean, I mean, like, real. So like part of it is just what, what, what is an interest, what, you know. So um, I think that they're doing it. They have a practice that's working for them, you know. And 
and that I, I, I don't, you know, and if they're only doing it to get into heaven, I think they're idiots. And, um, and I think some, and so the rabbi's saying, hey, if you're doing it literally, like, you're, you're still off. Like, like, free your mind. It's the matrix for no one knows anymore. Free your mind. No kung fu. You know, like, let it happen. So um, he said to me, my son, go, you know, you're not, you're not getting it. So then my mind did not accept this. But after about two months of meditation, my thought had been stripped. We're going to get to the climax here. And I became aware of something sublime arising within. I set my mind to do the meditative exercises with the divine names and prayers. And one night after midnight, the Kabbalists loved to daven at midnight. I was sitting with the quill in my hand and the paper on my knees, and I nodded off. And then suddenly I saw the candle about to go out, as often happens when you wake from a nap. I rose to trim the candle, and I saw that the light persisted. And I was like, what? And as I gazed and contemplated, that light seemed to be issuing from me. I said, I, I don't believe it. I walked, and also think of the burning bush. Like, what, what was the burning bush? Because remember, the burning bush in Kabbalah is the big revelation. Because it's like, whoa. I walked throughout the house, and look, the light moved along with me. I lay down on the couch and covered myself, but the light of my soul was still with me. Those who know a little bit about this through their own experience will be angry with me that I'm trying to convey knowledge about something that can only be learned through experience. My intention here is only to convey to those who don't know such things that God really can reveal to those who are ready to receive, even if the only genuine proof of this knowledge is the wisdom gained from one's own personal perspective. And so it ends where all mysticism ends, which is, look, if you tell me, well, Rabbi, promise me that if I... You know, I come to synagogue, something special is going to happen. Promise me if I do yoga, something special is going to happen. Promise me, my doctor, if I do all the exercise and I, and I give up all the things you tell me to feel better. I can't promise you anything, right? I can't prove it to you. We're, we're in the realm of the fact that the world may be more complicated than meets the eye. And things that are invisible may well be true. But unless you've experienced it, I can't promise you anything. And it may never happen for you. It's okay, don't worry about it. Everything here can get messed up. And in that sense, it is like love. Um, you, you know, like I had a very, very, very close friend who got married, and, you know, I asked him when he got married, because, you know, I was like, I, I'm, I'm the guy who throws my arm around your shoulder and says, do you really want to do this? And then they say things like, I have to because everyone's here, and I'm the guy who says, you really don't. I will be happy to go out there and grab a microphone and say, you know what, we're all going to have a great party and we're all going to eat some food, but there's no wedding today. Groom's not ready. Bride's not ready. I, 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 no, no one ever takes me up on that, but they should. So like, you know, and, um, I'd be great. I still get to keep my fee though. That's the rule. I showed up. I did my part. But, you know, so I asked one, like one guy, I mean, it's very powerful for me. I said, are you sure you want to do this? He's like, sure, why not? And I said, oh, I mean, you know, you guys don't seem to get along so great. And, you know, and he said, well, you know, she, she's my best friend. And I'm like, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. Everyone wants to give the best friend sermon, right? Your spouse is your best friend. Your spouse is your friend. It's not, that's not my sermon. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. Um, that can be a real cop-out. Um, and, you know, and it's like, you know, and they said, you know, Nadav, I don't know. I, I remember when we were younger and you, you had this whole love affair with this woman and you went nuts. I've never had that. I, 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 don't, I mean, I think I'm in love with her. I was like, thinking you're in love with her doesn't cut it. You know, but he's like, but I've never experienced love. Now he's divorced and he's in love. 
right? Now, now I'm not saying that that's not my recommendation, everyone, go get divorced and fall in love. I'm not sure, maybe not in love. I don't know what he's in. Lynn knows him. But um, he's, not, he's not the shul. But what I mean to say is, I can't tell someone who's never been in love what it's like to be in love. I just can't, right? I can't tell someone, like, if someone meditates and then they're like, holy crap, I can see a light outside my body that's following me around in the dark. And you could be like, I think you have peyote or something, you know? <laughs> but the truth is that I don't know that that's not true, right? I once, um, I don't meditate much anymore because now I daven, but when I was into meditation in college, um, um, you know, I once had people over, I said, we're just going to meditate. Usually it never went well. But, you know, we did this meditation, and I had one of the, I, I just, I, would, I, I, whatever it was, I was just feeling it. I felt like this energy coursing through me. And it was just like one of the two or three best like, feelings of my life. Um, and, uh, and I was just completely still. I was very, very strict about not moving at all and, uh, and slowing my breathing. And when I opened my eyes, I had four people staring at me. And they were all, and they were all just like this. like, yeah. And I was like, did I not brush? I mean, like, you know, what, <laughs> like, what happened? And no one had said a word. We were in complete silence. And then they looked at each other, and I was like, What's going on? And then one of them said, did you see what I saw? And, and, and they were like, did you see all of these colors like shining from Nadav's head? And they were like, that's what I saw. Now, I, I'm, I'm not a great meditator, but I mean, like, that was weird for me, which is to be like, there are four people in a room all saying they saw something that that should be just one person's, like they rubbed their eyes too hard and saw something. And um, so like, the question is, do you believe that the brain is, is capable of doing things. We can all be skeptical of everything. Um, one final thing I'll throw out there is back on Yom Kippur last year, I talked about mindfulness. There was a day I went to Chaparral because I was supposed to have a parent-teacher conference and I couldn't get a cell phone signal. I've since dropped T-Mobile and I get much better signal with Verizon, so mention me for my referral fee. But I couldn't get a signal and I had to wait an hour outside and I had no, and I did not bring a book. And I couldn't leave because I never knew when Rob was going to come out of the thing. It was like she was being evaluated. And um, I decided, I'd just seen like a 60 Minutes on Mindfulness Meditation with Anderson Cooper. And he said he could do it. I figured if Anderson can do it, I can do it. And, um, and I just really, really, really cleared my mind. And man, it was just like the Friday night service. Like after about 20 minutes of complete like just nothingness, I, like my whole body changed. I felt so peaceful. My breath slowed down. It got even. And I just could hear everything like a music. Like the car in the distance and the bird chirping. It just all just sounded like music, just like the Friday night service that we do on the patio. And I'm like, oh, maybe these mindfulness people have something. You know, like in other words, I never, who knew? You know, like, and so it just goes back to the idea that like we're trying to fool our brain. We're trying to tap into something. And yet the conversation about religion out there is just also superficial. Like, do you believe in God? Do you not believe in God? I'm agnostic. I'm an atheist. I'm not so sure. What do you think? You know, I came to synagogue and didn't do anything for me. And that's fine. I'm not criticizing that. But I'm like, it takes work to get to anywhere. But if your thing is, prove to me it's real. Prove to me it's this. I go back to that, which is, it's like, you know, Heschel said it. Proving that Judaism can change your life, change your body, change your spirit, change your energy. He's like, it's like convincing someone who's never been in love to be in love. And then you wonder why the Friday night service, mystically, is all about the union 
of love. It's the union of energies. And why the whole Saturday thing that ends here is all about yichud, yichud, yichud. The energy is coming into balance in you, you as part of the outer energies, and achieving something. So if someone's like, well, that's very nice. Can you make it happen for me? No. I mean, but it doesn't mean it's not possible. Maybe you can make it happen for yourself. Or maybe it's a different thing that'll make it happen for you. But ultimately, I want, it's, I'm very old-fashioned. Ultimately, it comes down to your own personal experience. If you've had an experience of it, that's awesome. And, but it, it takes work. And, um, but, you know, do I, do I think people are just hallucinating little energies? I don't think so. I actually really think that the whole thing is about the fact, and I've said it before, can, can you see the world as God sees it rather than as you see it? And I think that's the secret to the whole thing, all of Judaism. It's all about saying it's not about your life and your journey and your history and your snapshots and your story and your issues. It's about God's issues. It's about God. This, the only story that matters is history. And history is a story with God as the main character. And so it's all about, can I see time from God's point of view rather than from my point of view, my short-sighted point of view? And it's about the fact that do you really want to walk around yelling at your friends about the fact that, well, I'm, I'm the tough guy at the wedding who's going to throw the rabbi off. I, I believe that what my hand can touch, right? I'm, I'm, a, what we, I'm, I'm a tough guy. I'm a tough guy. I only believe the things that you can prove. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not impressed. And also, I don't find that an interesting way to live. And I don't really find it necessarily like you impress me. Like, so that, do you know what I mean? Like, in other words, I'm sorry, that's not my sensibility. I actually think there could be invisible energies in the world. I actually think that when two people, you know, come together in love or pe two people come together in anger, that there is an energy that is, that is emanating outward that is changing things. And it's screwing, and, and it sends waves, and it screws with your kids, and it screws with your neighbors, and it screws with your street. And then the music of the cosmos changes because the people over there who are fighting, on some level, I'm picking up on that. Even, I might even hear it, and it's messing with my music, because we're all sharing one system, and that's messing with me. And then, you know, so like, you start to realize, like, oh my God, this, there really is, like, we're all swimming in the same energies, and, and they, they extend beyond what I can see. And uh, it's not soft thinking. It's actually a more enlightening. So the only thing that matters to me is, if God looks at my street, what does God see? And I think God sees the invisible energies. I think God sees it in not the way we see it. So the question is, can I start seeing the world as God sees it? And I think that ultimately, some of it just comes down to personal experience.